I have to tell you that I am really bad at waiting. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily impatience. It's just that I think that there might be something better I could be doing. Maybe you're the same way. What else could I be doing while I wait? There are plenty of other things that I could accomplish while I'm just standing around doing nothing, right? Now, mind you, this little tidbit about me is coming from someone who likes roller coasters. Is there anything more that is worthless in waiting than standing around for over an hour to ride something for two minutes? Probably not. Well, when we lived a few miles from America's rockin' roller coast, Cedar Point, we had season passes, and we sort of developed a system on how to avoid waiting. We would go to the park at certain times. We would pay attention for maybe when there was a rain that was just long enough to scare away the non-locals who didn't know that that was just going to be a cloudburst, and we'd go after a rain. We would move around the park in a deliberate way, trying to optimize our time. But sometimes, there was just nothing you could do about it. New rides were always going to be a long wait. There wasn't anything you could do about it. It wasn't up to me. I couldn't game a system to make them go faster. You couldn't really devise any sort of system to get on Millennium Force faster or to ride Top Thrill Dragster the year it came out to get through the line quickly. You had to wait. One time we waited till I believe 1.30 in the morning to get through. You had to wait. Well, we find ourselves in a similar situation as we think about our lives this morning. Now, it may be what we're going to be talking about with the coming of Christ, or it may be you're just a kid who is anxious for Christmas break and being able to open those presents that... Uh, keep on showing up under the tree. Maybe you're an adult and you're looking forward to the, the time with family or maybe it's lined up that you're going to have some time off work finally. Regardless, the passage of time is not in your hands. It's not in my hands. We can't speed it up. And even if you wanted to, you can't slow time down either. Things happen when they happen, right? We're not in control. And this is the idea that is expressed to us in the beginning of our passage today. Our first century sisters and brothers in Christ had heard that Jesus was going to return to judge the living and the dead. But there were seeds of doubt being planted in them. It was seeming that Jesus was slow in his coming. Well, if they had doubts... If they had doubts in the first century, how much more so do we anticipate the coming of Christ? How much more so does it spread doubt among us? We are waiting. And that's really the thing that we stress in Advent, that we are anticipating the second coming of Jesus. We think about his first coming at Christmas but we're called now to anticipate this second coming. So, as we think about these things, we're going to divide up this passage into three points to help us navigate it. And hopefully at the end, we can take this passage and apply it to our lives. The first thing that we're going to see 
is that God's timing is different than ours. Now, it might seem to us like it is taking Jesus a long time to return, but we read in this passage today that God is outside of time. And the impatience that might plague us isn't an issue for him. He is patient. Secondly, we see that God is patient. You and I might struggle with waiting, but God doesn't. Instead of seeing God as being slow and making us wait, like that parent who says, no, you can't open your presence on December 7th. God is telling us to wait. It's about God being slow and patient and merciful. And to understand this helps us to know God's love and it shows us his desire to show us mercy. And finally, we learn that the final judgment will be surprising and absolute. The apostle Peter here uses some intense language to describe what will happen. This return of Jesus is something that we are to take seriously because it brings final destruction and there is no escape. And so we find ourselves in our first point as verse 8 greets us today. Now even though we're just coming to the passage for this one week, it's still important that we have a little bit of context that we didn't get by reading what came before it so that we can interpret this passage correctly. As you've heard me say so many times, the most important three rules of proper biblical interpretation is context, context, and context. So let's set the context so we can interpret this correctly. In the previous verses of this chapter, Peter mentions false teachers who say, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter lets his audience know that Jesus is going to come. And he uses the flood as an example of how the judgment will come. But instead of judging the earth with water, he tells them that this time, God is storing up a judgment, but it will be with fire. So what we come to today is Peter helping us to understand why it seems that this is so slow in coming. He, he wants his audience to understand something very important. Notice what he says here. Don't overlook this. I might have told this story before, but I had a music theory professor my freshman year of college. And I think every day of class, he said, don't miss the obvious. I've never forgotten it. And P Peter is saying the exact same thing here. Don't miss the obvious. Don't overlook this. Essentially, he's saying that there is something really obvious here. And if you don't stop and think about it, you are going to miss it. It's something important that we need to remember about God. To him, Peter says, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the point here is not to say that time could be longer or shorter than we think. That's not the point. What is being driven home to us is that God is outside of time. He isn't dependent on one rotation of the earth or a single trip around the sun. He doesn't get tired, and so he doesn't go to bed and get up the next morning. There is a persistent passage of time for us, but there isn't a persistent passage of time for God. He doesn't age. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In other words, he is eternal, and time doesn't matter to him in the same way that it does to us. And I do think we can somewhat understand this from our finite and small perspective here as humans. 
because the amount of time it takes for something to arrive when we're anticipating it can feel like forever, right? And when we are in the middle of enjoying something, time can fly. So time for us can seem to slow down or it can seem to go faster. Think about that year we had this past April, right? Time seemed to pass really slow. Time crawled, but for God, it was the same. So if we think that God has none of the categories that we have, he is omnipotent, he's infinite, he's omnipresent, he is outside of time. And so the keeping of his promise is not going to be when we perceive it, but when he ordains it. So let's use what we've been studying in the book of Genesis this year to help us understand this a little bit better. Remember, God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent right there in Genesis 3.15. But it never seems to come, right? That's, that's the tension we've been feeling in Genesis. It's like God is slow in keeping his promise, right? That's what we've been feeling week in and week out. And even when it seems like the promise is going to be fulfilled, it's different than we expect, And recently, we've been looking at the story of Abraham. And what happens? Isaac, the promised child, never seems to come. It's years and years. And Abraham and Sarah, as we've talked about before, are as good as dead when it comes to reproduction. But God still waits, doesn't he? Humans are impatient, but God has a plan. And it comes to pass as he ordains it, and he's glorified in it. It isn't on a human schedule, it's on his schedule. And so in verse 8, we've seen our first point here, right? That, that time is not to God as it is to us. And then in our second point, as we land in verse 9, we see that God is patient for a very important reason. Peter wants us to know that the Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise as we, as humans, would see it. God isn't being slow in bringing this world to an end. Instead, what is he doing? He's showing mercy. He's giving his people time to repent, and we're meant to understand the mercy of God in all of this. It's vital that we understand this verse in its original context. There are false teachers amongst them, and they're teaching that Jesus isn't going to return. So what are they doing? They're undermining the the very word of God, and they're undermining the testimony of the apostles who are teaching, as we say most weeks here, what are the apostles teaching? That Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And these false teachers are teaching against the word of God and against the teaching of the apostles. So this is serious. And Peter wants them to know that, that God is giving them time to repent Not only is he giving the people who believe these false teachers time to repent, he's giving the false teachers themselves time to turn and believe, to repent. The slowness of God's fulfilling this promise of Christ's return is another moment for them and for us to repent and believe. It's another moment to turn from our sin and pursue holiness It's another chance for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that a friend or family member might be brought to faith by the proclamation of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. Every day that Jesus tarries 
is another day for us to share the good news of his salvation. It's another day to turn from our sin and for us to live according to his law. And we also have to stop for a minute and dwell on one phrase in this verse, not wishing that any should perish. Now, Peter isn't teaching universalism here. He isn't saying that God is holding back his judgment so he can save everyone. This is a difficult phrase for us because we know that God brings his people to repentance. So if he doesn't want anyone to perish, why doesn't God just make everyone believe and get it over with? Well, the point here is not that God is frustrated that some people aren't coming to faith, that some people don't believe and he can't do anything about it. That's not what it's saying. We have to understand the context of the passage. The context of the passage lets us know that this is about the people who are hearing this false teaching that Jesus isn't going to return. He wants them to return to Jesus. He wants them to return to true teaching and believe the truth of what they've been taught Turn away from the false teachers and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So this is a call of urgency for the people of God. A call to us. Are we going to trust the revealed word of God or not? Is our hope in Christ alone for salvation? Or are we clinging to something else? Do we really believe that the word of God is sufficient for all that we need for life and for salvation? The point is that the patience of God allows us to return to him, to trust in him. Again, every day that Christ tarries is a blessing because we're given another day to be his faithful servants in this world. But this doesn't mean that we don't live in expectation of Christ returning. We have seen so far that God's timing is not our timing. And we have seen that that is a very good thing because it allows us time to repent and believe. Well, now as we move on to our third point and we finish out the passage for today, we're going to see that there is an urgency to this. The judgment of God will be surprising. It will be absolute. And we see some language here in Peter that we see in other parts of Scripture. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, Jesus used this example himself. The idea is that the judgment of God will be unexpected. People will be doing what they normally would be doing, and it will, it will come unexpectedly, and there will not be a warning. Now, it's human nature, human nature, to try and divine the times. But the word of the Lord tells us that it will not be, not only be like a, a thief in the night, but no one, no one will know the day or the hour. You won't have a, a special Holy Spirit beeper that will go off on your hip to tell you to be ready for the return of Jesus. It will be unexpected. It will come like a thief. And the New Testament over and over and over again relays this urgency to us. Jesus is going to return, but we will not know when. And so this is a call and a charge on our lives to live a life that will be ready for the judgment when Christ returns at the end of history to deliver his kingdom to his Father. And he amplifies, Peter amplifies this call to us by talking about the severity of the judgment of God. 
the heavens will pass away and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. It's important that we, that we get the contrast that, that Peter is working with here. Because as I said before, earlier in this chapter, Peter went back to the flood and talked about that judgment. But now he is letting us know that the final judgment will be one of fire and it will be absolute. You see, the flood involved the earth. But what do we read here? The final judgment will include the heavenly bodies. It'll all burn. This is severe and absolute. But we read that the works done on earth will be exposed. And this is humbling to know that our sinfulness will be exposed. But it's also good news. Because it means that the evil done in the world will be exposed and it will be judged. God is holy and he cannot let sin go unpunished. And to know that he is going to come and he's going to judge the living and the dead, it should be a great comfort to us. And I don't mean this in a, oh, you're going to get it when dad gets home kind of way. That's not it. As believers who believe in God's word, we delight in justice. We delight and desire truth. And we should desire for justice to be done, for God to judge sin. And that's what we see Peter moving towards in this text. Since all the stuff that we see in front of us is going to be dissolved, then we ought to live lives of holiness and godliness. Instead of pursuing the things of this earth, we're called to pursue the things of God. So why are we going after things that will fade away when we can pursue the things of God? We're told that we ought to live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the coming day of God. We are told that we are waiting for something greater. We anticipate a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we're called to chase after the things of God. Why? Because in that new heavens, And in that new earth, righteousness dwells. So why? Why would we pursue things that can perish when we can pursue those things that will remain for eternity? And so Peter challenges us to wait for that kingdom and to be diligent to be found by Jesus without spot or blemish and to be at peace. And so we go after the things of God because he has graciously saved us in his mercy. We desire to live a life worthy of the price that Jesus paid for us. And we do this because we know that we have been made clean and spotless, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We don't make ourselves blameless. We don't make ourselves without spot. We are saved by God's grace, and we received his perfect righteousness as a gift. And it is his righteousness that we are given. And that is what truly blesses us with peace as we labor in God's world to be holy as we wait for his coming. And so the message of this passage is so applicable for us right now. And I want to draw out two very specific applications and challenges for us today. First, look for the coming of Christ. Now, I'm not saying we should sit around and divine the signs. Instead, I'm suggesting that this truth of Christ's return should put our lives in perspective 
if everything we pursue in this life will burn, then maybe we should put a greater emphasis on the things that will not perish. And I think this mindset is so important for modern Christians because our modern affluence makes it very easy for us to say, hey, it's great that Jesus is going to return and everything, but can't he wait until I retire? I'd like to, you know, travel some. I'd like to have grandkids or great-grandkids. Can Jesus wait? Because life's pretty good here, right? We don't understand the desire for Christ to return like they did in the first century persecuted church. And so it's important that we have this perspective, that we look for his coming. We don't really understand the benefits of Christ's second coming because we think life is pretty good. But a life that looks for the coming of Jesus will have a focus on God's justice being done. It will value righteousness over personal safety, over security. It will understand that holiness is better than the pleasure of the moment that we are so easily drawn to. And so framing our lives in this way, giving our lives this mindset that dwells on the things of God instead of the things of this world is how we look for his coming. And secondly, pursue holiness. I have been thinking about this idea a lot lately. What does it mean for us to be a people that pursues holiness? What does it mean for us to go after the things of God? How would our lives look different if we radically pursued holiness in our lives? What would we value if this was a concern that was continually in front of our eyes and we were going after it daily? And we might have an idea of what we think that looks like. But I want to challenge you to contemplate this at an even deeper level this week. And then consider, contemplate, what is one thing, what is one thing that you can do to set your feet on the path to a new journey of pursuing righteousness. It might be a new habit. It might be getting rid of an old habit. Regardless, we need to come to this idea of pursuing the holiness of God with a complete trust that it isn't on us. It isn't on us. We need to trust that the word that we have heard will be at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how it's going to happen. That is how it works. We don't and can't do this on our own. God works in his people through means. And if we are to pursue holiness, we're not going to be successful unless we truly trust in the sufficiency of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As I started out saying, waiting can be hard. But isn't it usually worth it? If we look for the coming of Christ, we're going to have to wait, maybe even beyond our earthly life. But when the wait causes us to pursue the things of God, it's worth it. We are his people saved by his glorious mercy. And so we have a confidence that God will be at work in us. He will make us holy. And he will conform us to the image of the Son, And so we wait for him, 
trusting that while we wait, He will be at work, and He will use us to glorify Him. Amen.